the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everyone, my name is Reagan. Welcome to Conversations with Sarah, with your host, Sarah Carnes. She's my mom. She's on the radio and TV and loves the Cleveland Browns. But one of her favorite things is connecting with you. She wants to help you live a healthy, happy life. I don't know how she does it. She even got me to love carrots and eat broccoli. Thanks for listening. I am so excited for one of my first guests, dear friend of mine. I am like a sponge when I'm around her. She's Bridget Titkemeyer from At Being Bridget. She is a functional nutrition expert, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, believes in the power of food to transform your body. She has witnessed the power of using food as the first line of intervention for disease prevention and management after co-creating the nutrition program at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine with Dr. Mark Hyman and working with over 3,000 patients. Currently, she's the owner of Being Bridget Functional Nutrition, and she's an adjunct instructor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland for graduate-level courses in integrated and functional nutrition. You can follow her at at being Bridget. So happy to have her today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be one of the first people that you interview on your oh, amazing podcast. Girl, I am like a sponge when I am around you. I just want to soak it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a, it's such a, a, a cool story because I have to say, I, I'm always like I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Because yes. it can be like a free time vacuum. I get sucked in. I know. But that's how we met. It is. Yes, it's how we met. <laughs> so, you know, it does have these super bright spots. Uh, somehow we connected and we were going back and forth and we ended up saying, well, let's go have dinner at town hall one night. And I think we sat there for like three hours straight talking. Three or four hours. <laughs> I remember being like, I've never spent this long with the person that I just met like this. <laughs> Oh, that's because it was just an instant connection. And I wanted to be able to share what you shared with me that night with so many other people. Um, You know, on my morning show here on The Fish, I I try to sprinkle in, you know, a little bit about my health journey and me kind of being transformed by the foods and, you know, different things that I'm doing. No one probably would guess that 10 years ago, I wouldn't even touch a salad. Green foods. I was like, I was terrible. It was like, where's the nearest Taco Bell? That was my life. So big (laughs) transition. Um, I want to kind of start from the the very beginning here. You know, I I mentioned that you have a story as well. Becoming a a, a dietitian, a registered dietitian, nutrition expert, um, in functional medicine. So just to start us off, can you, you tell me a little bit about, first of all, the functional medicine piece? Because I think that's a, a big piece of today. What is functional medicine? Because we're going to be throwing that word out a lot today. Yes, I know. <laughs> and when you know it, you think that everyone knows it. Exactly. And then you realize that a lot of people actually don't. <laughs> right, right. So kind of explain what is functional medicine and then how it relates to you being a dietitian. Yes. Okay, perfect. Functional medicine, I believe, is really the future of medicine because it's so personalized and the patient is treated as an individual rather than a disease. And I think that so often when you go to the doctor, you're treated as your diagnosis and not as an individual of like, okay, well, what are all these other factors that you have going on and what is your lifestyle and What is your diet like? And so functional medicine really dives into answering those questions about the individual that's sitting in front of them. And I love that so much because you're treated as a person and someone listens to you, which can be hard to find sometimes when you're seeking out doctors. So, and that was my own experience. So in functional medicine, it's all about diving into the root cause of why you have the symptoms that you have. Mm -hmm. So instead of having you come in with, high cholesterol or hormonal imbalances and then just throwing some kind of medication at it, which is what we know is the common 
theme in traditional medicine. You know, you have acne and you go on Accutane or other, or you're put on the pill or you have acid reflux and you're put on a proton pump inhibitor or you have high cholesterol and you're put on Lipitor. And no one's even asking, what is your diet like? Like, what are we masking with these drugs? And how can we help to optimize the basic root of your health? And I like to compare it to a tree. Uh, I love nature. And so Me if you too. think of humans as trees, there's certain things that trees need in order to stay in balance. Water, oxygen, soil, sunlight. When you take one of those things out of the equation, it will throw off the balance of the tree and the tree will not flourish. Mm-hmm. It will start to die off. You could like throw various herbicides or whatever at it to try to keep it living and mask that deficiency. But at the end of the day, you'll only be able to do that for so long. And it's the same for humans. We're, we're wired to have, we need balance in everything. And when, when, when you have too much of something that you're exposed to like environmental toxins or molds or various heavy metals like mercury, which is so common in people that have dental amalgams and other exposures through fish, then your body is not going to feel good because it's going to throw off that balance. Or when you don't have enough of something, like you don't have enough nutrients or you don't have enough movement or you don't have enough love and connection in your life, Mm -hmm. all of those things can actually throw off your health. And so instead of throwing medication at it as the first line of intervention, functional medicine tries to understand what are those imbalances and how can we bring you back into your equilibrium. Now, it it just sounds so obvious to me. It's so common sense. That's uh, Sometimes I'll explain it as it's just medicine that makes sense. <laughs> it is. And that's why I think there's, to me, I think there's a little disconnect because when I, when I start to tell people about functional medicine and what you just said, they're like, it's almost confusing. It's so simple. Yes. It's like, well, then why hasn't this always been the way? How did we get so far down the line where we just have these Band-Aids, like you said. Yeah, I think it's the power of the pharmaceutical industry and not a lot of people making money off of using a functional medicine approach. It's hard from an insurance standpoint to make money off of that, off of spending a lot of time with people during appointments. It's hard for the pharmaceutical industry to make a lot of money. The pharmaceutical industry is funding most medical education. So, I mean, nutrition... Doctors are given less than 20 hours nationally of nutrition education in medical no, school. And people are like shocked by that. Yeah. I even have friends that are like, oh, well, I'm going rec- to run that supplement that you recommended by my doctor. And I'm like, sure, go ahead. But they probably will know nothing about it. Right. Because they weren't taught about supplements right. in medical school. Obviously, you always want to run everything by your doctor. Sure. But it's just something that is interesting when you think about it. It is. And, and I think what you just said is so true. So I hope, and you mentioned it earlier, that this is the future of medicine. Absolutely. So do you see, I mean, because you're much more deeper in this than I am, do you, do you really see it evolving? Like five years from now, 10 years from now, do you see this really catching on? I do. And when you... I mainly do. I think that there's certain things that will prevent it from moving as quickly as it should, Mm -hmm. mainly the reimbursement and the issue with it being very difficult to treat people with functional medicine in a hospital-based setting Mm -hmm. because you're still on that that hamster wheel of having to see a certain volume of people and it leads to burnout when you're yeah. diving that deep into people and then you're expected to see 10 people in one day and remember all of their stories. Yeah. yeah. So I think that there's some things that are prohibitive, but I also believe that when we opened the Center for Functional Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic in 2014, that is really was the catalyst, in my opinion, that put functional medicine on the map. Oh, I do too. Where it created so much conversation, yes. and then it was like this cool thing that you know all the moms from Rocky River were coming to functional medicine, and yeah. within their friend group, they're like, "Oh, who's your dietitian? Oh, who's your doctor?" <laughs> That's my friend group right now. I'm living exactly. that life. <laughs> I am living it. But it, it's just, it's so hopeful to me when I hear these stories. Like, and, and I feel like I'm a success story. You from, are. Uh, from functional medicine. I mean, I've been told for years I have fibromyalgia. I was told I had everything from lupus to uh, autoimmune disease. And I, I basically was told by a rheumatologist, like I was a ticking time bomb for an autoimmune disease. And I was like, well, I'm just not going to sit here and do nothing And that's when I found functional medicine and just everything, you know, I was having all kinds of crazy symptoms and went uh, and it really, really changed my life. And now I feel like I'm on this. I always say I'm like a healthy lifestyle evangelist. I just want to go out there and just tell everyone that there are so many stories 
like me, people with autoimmune diseases, I, I know you work with people with all different uh, diabetes, probably all kinds of stuff that have like changed their life. Yes. With food. Yes. As medicine. Yes. It's just like the more stories we tell, the, the easier it's going to be. You're actually one of those stories too. Yes. That's how you started at the age of 14. Kind of tell that story too, because I think that's inspiring as well. Yes. Okay. So I, for a long time, didn't really feel comfortable telling the story because it's um, it's just uh, there's so much stigma around a lot of the issues that I was having. Um, I was diagnosed with narcolepsy when I was 14 by a neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic. I was he's actually thankful that they were able to identify that I had narcolepsy at such a young age because mm-hmm. so so many people go so many years without being diagnosed yeah. and having to function through their life. So narcolepsy is like the guy in rat race where you can't control when you're falling asleep. It's not something that you're born with. It's something that develops. They told us at the time that it was a genetic condition, uh, although we have no family history of it. Mm. And they, since na- since then, the research has come out showing that narcolepsy, there's an autoimmune component to it, which yeah. is why it makes sense to address a person's diet and lifestyle. So that's that actually just came out last year in a paper saying that there's an autoimmune component to people that have narcolepsy with cataplexies, which is something else that I was experiencing. So a lot of people that get narcolepsy, have cataplexies, which are mini seizures that develop. I would have about 20 of them a day and they would last anywhere from like five to 15 seconds. I was fully conscious when it would happen, but my eyes would roll to the back of my head. And if I were standing, I would lose my balance. It was when I almost drowned in my friend's pool and she had to like basically save me that her mom was a nurse. And she said to my mom like this there's something happening, and I think that you need to take her in to see if she has epilepsy. So the reason that I was taken in to, by my parents, they thought that you know I was just like becoming lazy, and they all the teachers would call my house and say that I wasn't awake for any period of the day. Yeah. I literally fell asleep every single class of every single day, and I ran track and cross country, and we would run 1,200 uh, repeats on the track, and then we'd have like a three-minute uh, window of time that – you would have to rest. And while everyone else was drinking their water and socializing, I was sleeping on the grass. In those three minutes, I would fall asleep and be fully asleep. And then wow. my friend's older sister would come and pick me up from the grass and be like, okay, time to run again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you actually found then functional medicine for your your parents. I, th- I think this is just amazing that your parents kind of knew enough and you were saying – we're going to go a little deeper here. I know you were diagnosed for some at the Cleveland Clinic, but then you found functional medicine through this, right? Yeah. So my parents found functional medicine. I hated the idea of functional medicine because I was like, you don't understand. I have a disease and this is severely limiting my quality of life. I need to take the drug that this neurologist is recommending. And right. he, he was so adamant that like nutrition has nothing to do with your disease. There is no research to support that food has anything to do with your condition. It's something that will get worse over time. You'll need medication and your sensitivity to it will increase or decrease over time. So you'll just need to continue to increase those drugs. So he was, he actually hated the idea that my parents were taking me to functional medicine so much that he refused to continue seeing me. So he was the only pediatric neurologist in the department. And I was then switched to an adult neurologist at the time when I was, at that time I had been 15 because it had been at least six months that I had been seeing functional medicine. So I hated the entire idea. And we're hearing from my doctor, like, she needs this medication. And so I'm saying to my parents, like, you guys aren't doctors. Why do you think that you know enough to say that I need to see this functional medicine quack that is operating out of this house and running all these very strange and obscure labs on me? Right. (laughs) Uh, I would leave the appointments and go sit on the front porch of the office crying because she was like, you can't eat those foods and you can't do this. And we think that you need to not take the medication yet so that we can really figure out what's going on underneath. And she's running like these leaky gut tests and food sensitivity tests and nutrient deficiency tests. It was Genova is a, you know, functional medicine company at the time. They didn't own it at that time. Um, So it was the company that owned it before Genova. And 
My parents, she was like, I'm, we're going to put you on a strict elimination diet, no gluten, dairy, soy, eggs, peanuts, all of those things. And I refused. And my mom was like, no, this is something that we're doing. And I will yeah. make all of your meals for you. And at the time, there was no like gluten-free section in the grocery store. Oh, I can't even imagine doing that back then. Yeah. There was no certified gluten-free yeah. symbol that came out. I remember when that happened. I was in graduate school. And... So my mom would go to like four different grocery stores and then she would make me all of my meals. And the school that I went to, you like paid for all of your lunches at the beginning of the year. So I was the only person that packed lunch and I was like mortified by it. Uh, It took me like a good eight years to not be so embarrassed that I'm gluten free. (laughs) Wow. And my how times have changed. So much. Yeah. But I love that your story. I mean, I know you didn't like it at first, but thank goodness you had progressive parents because. Yes. Thank goodness. You ended up going through this and figuring out that, wow, food is really working to heal me. Yeah. Food and like breath work. My dad was really into breath work at the time. Mm. And that helped so much with my energy levels and a number of different things that they were seeking out that helped so much. And I remember my mom is a secretary at the Cleveland Clinic and has been for 30 years. And so she, we were paying out of pocket for going to see this functional medicine doctor and it was super expensive and it was a huge sacrifice that my parents made. And I remember her submitting appeals to the Cleveland Clinic saying, would you just cover part of this because we're saving you money in the long run by not needing her to take so much of this really expensive drug. Right. And it was like deny, deny, deny. She kept submitting appeals. And I just remember being like so disappointed after it started working and I had to, you know, um, recognize that I was making improvements within three to four weeks of being on this lineage diet. I was making improvements. But it was something that... As we watched, as I watched that appeal process and like the Cleveland Clinic deny all mm-hmm. of that and then like coming around to the idea that like, okay, this is kind of common sense. And my parents were never against me being on medication. I still take medication about four days a week. Um, it's a very low dose. And my neurologists are always like, you're so lucky that your, your body's so receptive to the medication. And I'm like, this is not luck. This right. is like years of taking the hard route. Yes. We didn't take the easy route and just right. like say, okay, yeah, we'll take this and mask all these other issues that are happening. Still to this day, when I eat gluten, it's like I can feel my eyes twitching and I fall asleep instantly. So it's wow. like, imagine how much medication I would have needed had we not identified something like I know, that. I know. It, it's just crazy to me. You mentioned something earlier. You said that your neurologist at the time was like, there's not research to show that food will help or nutrition. And That is always so frustrating to me because I I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I know the amount of autoimmune diseases out here. It's just staggering. I feel like staggering. I could name you three or four direct friends that have an autoimmune disease now. uh, And you said that was autoimmune related. But it's frustrating when they say, you know, let's use MS as an example. I know several people that have MS and they're like, well, I asked my neurologist and they say, you know, food or, you know, they don't really bring that up or not. And it's like. Well, of of course there's no research on it because do you know how hard it is to get research funding to show how leafy greens could help you? Right. Not to mention like that then requires people to be keeping track of how often they're eating those and you have to trust that they're reporting what they're actually doing, which is a huge limitation in any nutrition research. But yeah, I've had patients tell me that they're endocrinologist for their diabetes told them that food doesn't really matter for their disease. I had a woman that one time she had arthritis and she was seeing this rheumatologist from Johns Hopkins and had come to the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine for a second opinion. She was seeing the doctor and at the Cleveland Clinic and myself and she was losing weight because we had her on like a very specific nutrition plan to help to reduce her immune response to foods and she had previously been drinking soda when she was seeing the rheumatologist at Johns Hopkins. So she went back there and he told her that she was losing too much weight and that she needed to start drinking soda again. No. Yes. I couldn't, I, mean, I couldn't make something like that up. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I hear, and it blows my mind. Like, how can this be happening? And that's what I think makes it hard for me to, I'm sure you feel all the time, like, oh my gosh, you know, how could this, how could people at such a high level in these, you know, and I don't want to look, sound like I'm dissing any doctors because I don't feel like that. They all do an amazing job in their own ways, but it's like, when are they going to start saying, well, okay, I get there's no, maybe not enough research out there. Right. 
but we know that it makes an impact. And the reason there's no research is because it's all about money. Right. Well, and there <laughs> is some research. I think that they're just not taught it in functional that's medicine. True. And there's more and more research that's coming out. I mean, if you even think back to, so before I worked in, at the Center for Functional Medicine, I worked at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute for two years okay. under Dr. Roizen. And he has been publishing books on, you know, he's Dr. Oz's partner. He's been mm-hmm. publishing books on the, the power of nutrition for years. And under that department, they also run the Dr. Esselstyn program for preventing and reversing heart disease. So Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. Dean Ornish were two of the first physicians in the 80s that were able to publish uh, research that showed that changing a person's diet, they're very like um, vegan minded or plant based. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a, the argument over which is the best way to eat. I think that the coolest thing is that their findings were that by changing a person's diet, you could literally reverse heart disease. And they were publishing that research in the 80s. In the 80s. So it's like, how how is that not more commonly known? Right. I know. That's it's, And then that's the stuff. That's, well, that's why we're here today. <laughs> spreading the word because you're right. There is research out there. It's just getting it, getting it to everyone to know. Okay, I, you also mentioned something um, a little bit earlier too, and that's the food sensitivity, um, mm-hmm. where you know you found out the gluten was uh, something with your autoimmune thing that was really bothering you. Could tell like as soon as you started to eat that, that mm-hmm. would bother you. That is something that I feel like now is so common. People, I mean, I can't have gluten either. I, I go crazy when I have gluten. Right, and. Do you see that that's a, a common thing with people with autoimmune? Didn't removing gluten clear up your like rashes? Yeah, I had these. I had these crazy rashes, and I I tell you, I went to a doctor. I went to probably three or four um, dermatologists. I went to probably three or four family doctors. I had these rashes that would come on my legs, and I would, I actually have scars from itching. They would itch so bad. I would go to bed at night and I would wrap my legs in ice because that's the only way I could fall asleep because I would itch them so bad and I would just end up crying myself to sleep with the ice packs on. It was like, there, and I just keep saying, I know there is something deeper that's wrong. Not one doctor through that whole experience. And again, it was dermatologists and I had every steroid cream. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) No one ever mentioned, what about gluten? What about nothing until I went to functional medicine? Yes. And as soon as I stopped eating gluten, probably, mine probably took about a good month to fully get out of my system. All my rashes went away. And I've only had it come back when I've been glutened at a restaurant. Yeah. And I can tell I have to be very careful. And I always, restaurants are really tough. Restaurants are tough. And I always, now I've learned to say, I'm allergic. I will get really sick. You have to be very firm with them. Yeah, you do. Because some people just don't get it. But um, but yeah, no, and I'm so thankful that there's so much gluten-free stuff now. But but it's such a good like experience or story about healing from the inside out instead yes. of just looking at like how we can treat this rash, looking at the origin of what is cre- what are you putting in your body that's creating this inflammatory response. Yes. And one of the doctors at the the clinic told me something or said something to me once, and I never forgot it because I was just so excited that, yeah, yeah, you know, I stopped eating gluten and I'm, you know, I can't believe it. I don't know why everybody just doesn't stop. You know, when if you have an autoimmune disease, to me, it's like a no brainer. Just stop eating gluten. That's one of the first things you should do. And she looked at me and she said, the people who don't just probably aren't sick enough. And I'll never forget her saying that. It's like, because I did, I got to this breaking point where I was like, okay, getting better to me is much more important than me having that regular pizza or whatever those foods are that people love, the processed foods and all of that, that we've, I became addicted to. I know I was like, I I had such an unhealthy diet and I think so many people do. And it's like when you can end that relationship with food, when that when your health becomes more important than that, then it clicks. And it's like, to me, I had to become sick enough. Yes. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people. You're so right. And it's hard for it's hard to draw a direct correlation between a person's diet and then their reaction to something. And I have people that, like even clients of mine, that 
we test them and they have blood work that shows that they have a gluten sensitivity with one of the most reliable food sensitivity tests out there. And I still can't convince them to remove gluten from their diet because they don't. Un- they're like, I feel pretty good. Yes. And I just have it sometimes. But the thing about gluten is that it stays in your system. The half-life of gluten is 21 days. So it cuts in half after 21 days of eating it. And then that means that within six weeks of eating just one serving of gluten, it could literally be like the size of a person's thumb it takes that long for it to be removed from your system. So even if you're eating like a low gluten diet, you're still not giving yourself the opportunity to experience what it would be like if you weren't, if you didn't have it in right. your diet. So for, you can't really have cheat days. Time. You can't, at least initially. And I think that, you know, I'm a huge advocate of non-negotiables, establishing what your non-negotiables are, mm. because otherwise it's so hard to be on such a limited diet and have a healthy relationship with food. So I think that it's important to find times that you'll You'll give a little mm-hmm. when it's appropriate or when it makes the situation easier. Like for me, I try not to eat a lot of sugar, but on Thanksgiving, our entire Thanksgiving is gluten-free because my sister has autoimmune issues and she doesn't eat it. My cousin has autism. And so like our whole family, yeah. we just eat gluten-free for the entire Thanksgiving. My boyfriend actually just spent Thanksgiving with us for the first time. And he was like, I can't believe this whole thing is gluten-free and it's so good. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, right. It can be. <laughs> but I try not to eat a lot of sugar and I try not to eat too much dairy. But on something like Thanksgiving, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm not going to have a piece right. of that gluten-free pie because I'm eating a low-sugar diet. I love that you said that. I think that having those non-negotiables where you're like, this is something that I can't budge on and then this is something that I can is really important. And I see this even with people that once you get super concerned with the quality of foods, like even just removing the whole gluten-free equation, but the quality of foods like beef or fish when... We know that grass-fed beef is significantly better than grain-fed beef Mm -hmm. and that it increases the omega-3s, it increases vitamin A, and it decreases some of the inflammatory response. But that doesn't mean that every single time that you're going to have beef, it's going to be grain or grass-fed. And so I think that there's a component, it's called orthorexia nervosa, and it's when it's a new eating disorder that's going to be added to the diagnostic codes where it's an obsession around healthy eating to the point that it controls your life Mm -hmm. and it controls your social situations and it's like debilitating. And I've seen a lot of people that end up developing it. So I think that it's important when you're changing your diet to have certain time periods where you're stricter, like you may need to go on elimination diet for six weeks in order to see what what you're responsive to, but then establish your non-negotiables so that it's not controlling your life. I love that. Do you think people can be addicted to processed food? Yes, I absolutely think that. I don't think, I actually know that processed food addiction is an extremely real thing and that the way that your brain functions, uh, the dopamine reward that happens after you eat these processed foods that are high in sugar, fat, it's called the bliss point that food Mm. manufacturers hire food (laughs) scientists in order to create. And when they find that bliss point, it's that point that they know it's so good that you can't stop eating it. And so they... Companies invest millions and millions of dollars into creating these bliss points so that they can get people super addicted to processed foods. And I never thought that it was as much of a concern until I was in graduate school and I met Dr. Deborah Cohen, who is a physician that wrote a book called A Big Fat Crisis. And she, I met her at when I was interning in Washington, D.C., and she talked about how in the last 50 years, our willpower hasn't changed. So you don't have like genetically wired into your DNA less willpower than people did 50 years ago. But then why do we have the obesity rates that we right. do? Two thirds of adults are either overweight or obese. And so we could argue that those would be the only people that need to change their diets. But I really don't believe that. I think that the one third of normal weight people are still affected by nutrition because I see normal weight, whatever that means, um, technically from a BMI standpoint, individuals that are happy with their weight like you, but they have so many other issues that, you know, like IBD and IBS and hormonal issues and things that they need to change their diet for. But that's um, just a side note. So she talked about how our willpower hasn't changed in the last 50 years, but that our food environment has. Mm -hmm. And so if you think that because you can't stop eating these foods, that there's something that's like wrong with you, it's not true. I mean, you obviously have to have a certain level of discipline, but I think that I see so many, most of the people that I work with, I, they have a very high 
level of awareness that processed foods are not the best choice for them, but they still find themselves in like the cookie jar or grabbing other sugar things because they're looking for that dopamine hit. And so they looked at in this research study um, that I found then two years ago, and it brought to life everything that Dr. Deborah Cohen had talked about when I met her in 2014, is that there's five A's that are required in order to create a highly addictive substance. And this was the same model that they used for alcoholism in the 18th century when people were super addicted to alcohol. There weren't any legal parameters around like buying alcohol on Sundays. A lot of people were showing up to work drunk. People were drinking nonstop. And it wasn't until food companies had to change or the alcohol company and yeah. industry had to change to protect a person or the population's health that we saw a decrease in alcoholism. And so the same is true with processed food addiction. They use those same five A's, which is um, affordability and accessibility and age of onset advertising and affordability, accessibility, advertising, age of onset, and addictive properties, incorporating some kind of addictive property into the food. Mm. So affordability, making junk food as cheap as possible, accessibility, making it accessible wherever you go. So if you're driving home late at night, you know that you can stop at any drive-thru that's open 24-7. You get a meal deal for $3. Yeah, you can't actually escape it because it's at your gas station, it's at CVS, it's everywhere that you go. It's in your break room at work. Like People are surrounded by it, so it's like when you're addicted to something and then you're constantly reminded Mm -hmm. of it everywhere that you go. It's not like alcoholism where you can choose to remove yourself from certain situations in order to decrease your exposure to it. So it takes a higher level of willpower to abstain from something when you're exposed to it all the time and you're constantly reminded. And then I just wrote an article about this. I think that the sixth A that I would add is always being disconnected because when you're disconnected from your body, it creates space for addiction. And that can be within being super disconnected from like your feelings and emotions and just kind of like trying to fit in instead Mm -hmm. of understanding what is really honoring your own authentic self and not taking that time for prayer and meditation and all these Mm -hmm. things that really help to align a person to more connection in their life with themselves and then connection with other people that they have genuine relationships with. And they're not just friends with someone because it helps them gain a higher social status or something like that. I'm talking like real genuine relationships that improve your quality of life. Yes. And I think that when people are always disconnected, it leaves more space for them to become addicted to these processed foods and it makes it that much harder to kick that habit. Yeah. And it's in front of us all the time. I've heard, I hear uh, Dr. Mark Hyman say, you know, the story of the whole Betty Crocker thing. That he thought Betty Crocker was a real person? I did too. (laughs) What? I was like, what? Betty Crocker wasn't like this real person? Like, no. And then, you know, you go, I and I do have some Betty Crocker cookbooks. And I was like, well, why does it say, you know, use a block of Velveeta cheese? And like, all this is like branded throughout. And I'm like, how did we not? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but if he did it too, I feel like there was a lot of other people that Yeah, thought. yeah, I agree. I think that the reason he tells that story is because he knows that people will resonate with that. Yes, and, you know, I think, you know, this whole, like, then make everything easy and put everything in a box because everybody I talk to is busy. Right. Every Everyone is busier now more than ever because with the use of the internet and computers and your cell phone, you're able to be always on and it increases the level of um, requirements that you have. My parents were just talking about that uh, with my brother. He's going to be a senior in college and how it's like the expectations that are on kids Mm -hmm. that are just starting out working. It's like, no, you need to work 80 hours per week. That's like how you, uh, this is your level of acceptance that you need to achieve. And those things didn't exist Mm -mm. 20 years ago. No. And I think so that, people are busier than ever. And, it, it, you know, all of that's part of the problem, I think. And, you know, I love how, you know, in functional medicine, it, it also speaks to, you know, stepping back and learning breath work, yes. learning that your stress levels impact your life so much and your health. I mean, in general, that's yes. something that nobody really even talks about unless you're, you know, in this world, I think, and you start saying, Oh, yeah, it really does. Your cortisol levels are going to increase when you're stressed. And that's not good for your body. This whole fight or flight feeling, you know, it's like the 
uh, you, know, you know, being, you know, the thing about being chased by a lion. Right. That's okay every once in a while to have that. But you're not supposed to have that consistently. Right. And and most people do. And there's a there's statistics that show that 80 to 90 percent of primary care doctors visits are attributed to stress, poorly mm. managed stress, because obviously everyone has some level of stress. But I think that and I didn't realize this as much until I started my own practice last year. And I have a VIP next level nutrition program that most of the individuals that I work with are um, CEOs and high-level executives that are running companies or I work with their family members. And I run cortisol tests on every single person because I know that when they're complaining about not being able to lose weight, not being able to sleep at night, being tired during the day, all of those things are associated with high cortisol levels, like you said. And so if cortisol is an inflammatory hormone uh, when it's in levels of excess, I mean, we need some level of cortisol to function day-to-day and feel alert and all these other things. But when you're overly stimulated all the time, and you never have any downtime, it mm-hmm. leads to constant high cortisol levels throughout the entire day. And they're supposed to dip. Your cortisol levels are supposed to dip as the day goes on. Uh, and I, every person that I see has high levels of cortisol. So we talk about how can we help to relax you? Okay, we can add some adaptogens like ashwagandha or rhodiola or other things that have become more common. Mm-hmm. Um these herbals that help to decrease your stress levels or your stress response. And then that's, I view it as kind of like a Band-Aid. While it is helpful and I take adaptogens, Mm -hmm. you need to adjust your lifestyle and that's the harder part to do. Mm -hmm. So I used to push myself when I worked out until like I was nauseous and like passing out because I just thought that that was what was normal and it like made me feel so good. And it's not normal. It like completely depletes you and it over exercise can increase cortisol levels. And I think that people, you know, I hate when I'm in workout classes now after I've become so much more aware of this when workout instructors are like, come on, push yourself harder, like yeah. no pain, no gain and all these things that are like we traditionally think of. But it's like, what about just listening and honoring your body? Yeah. What if like right now I'm lightheaded and feel like I'm going to pass out? I should not be listening to you right now and right. pushing myself harder when like then I'm going to leave here to push myself harder throughout the entire day. And I think that this is so common for women who think that they need to do everything and anything Mm -hmm. in everyone else's life. And it's rare to take time for yourself, but you start your day like waking up early and probably cutting off your number of hours of sleep to go work out, to push yourself so hard to then like rush to work or to run your kids everywhere. And then you never stop for the entire day. And so it's like, how can you incorporate periods of rest into your day? So I have a lot of these CEOs that I work with block time on their schedule of 15 minutes for like napping or for laying down. And they like, can't do it. They're like, what do you mean? Well, I think some people view, honestly, napping as a, like a negative, like lazy. Yes. It's, there's I mean, so much stigma. Which there's is why so much stigma. So I'm like, I, I've, and I've always been a napper, but I, my husband doesn't mind if I tell the story. He always used to tease me and be like, seriously, you're going to go take a nap? And I would make me feel so guilty about it. And, you know, through the years and through all my health stuff, you know, now he like gets it. Yeah. But there's like, I used to feel horrible about it. Right. And, and now... If I'm driving around or driving the kids somewhere, I choke now. Like if I have to pull over in the parking lot somewhere and just pull my seat down and turn my phone timer on for 10 minutes to take a nap, I'll do it. Oh, yeah. I do that all the time. (laughs) Oh, good. Thank you. Let's normalize napping. No, it's true because there is research to show that people are more efficient when they have short naps, not long naps, but like short power, 15 minute, 20 minute naps that it can re-energize you for the day and it can rebalance your cortisol levels. So this is especially the the case after lunch when most people's cortisol levels are really supposed to be coming down because they're the highest in the morning and then they come down, like I said. And I commonly see people like right around 1 to 3 p.m. That's when their cortisol levels are the highest. And it's because like the morning's building up to them. They like have such a long to-do list before their end of the day. They know they need to get all these things in. And so the last thing that's on their mind is like, huh, let me take a a 15-minute power nap. Right, (laughs) right. And I like what you said that uh, the the highest in the mornings. I read something recently that, yeah, they are high in the mornings. So you should wait like an hour to have your coffee. Yeah, because coffee can spike cortisol levels. I, um, I think that there's, it's good to not be caffeinated the second that you wake up, because 
There's one in four adults in the United States are reported to have insomnia and can't sleep throughout the entire yeah. night. So we're on a constant cycle of not sleeping and then caffeinating to power through the day and then like needing another caffeine splurge in the afternoon that then inhibits your ability to sleep at night. And so then you like, it's a constant vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Your sensitivity to caffeine decreases. So then you need more in order to be stimulated throughout the day. And so I think that if you can, I always recommend having a period of time that you stop drinking coffee um, so that you can see how your body yeah. readjusts itself. Not that coffee is bad. And I honestly don't really like to label foods as good or bad mm-hmm. uh, because I think that it is so individualized. And yes. yet the faster that people can identify and um, appreciate that, the faster yeah. that they stop judging themselves or thinking that they're doing things that are right or wrong. Because it's not about doing things that are right or wrong. Right. It's just about honoring yeah. your body and what's best for And everyone for you is so moment. different. So different and every moment is different. So honoring your body might look like giving yourself a break and having a piece of dark chocolate. Yeah. But it could also look like having a salad and not eating sugar for that day. And I think that learning that that's okay to do things that aren't always your norm is another sign of honoring your body. But so back to the caffeine thing, I, I think that it's important to remove that from the equation, which is like the hardest thing to do. Yeah. And it wasn't until after I had recommended to so many people to stop drinking coffee that I, during Lent, um, like four years ago, had removed it. And I was like dying. It took me <laughs> two weeks to adjust. And I was only drinking one cup of coffee, but it's amazing yeah. how hungover you feel every single day when you're not drinking one stupid cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, I get up at like four in the morning and my coffee is what saves me every day. Well, and I completely understand that. And I resonate with that because I have narcolepsy. So the doctors recommend like drink more coffee to stay awake throughout the day. That's like one of the first recommendations that they make. And so for me, it was like, oh, drink more coffee and then take less medicine. And so that's a great exchange. But what I realized is that coffee actually makes me more tired. I didn't understand it until I removed it from my diet. And I see this in so many of my clients that they remove move coffee and they get more energized throughout the day because they're not crashing. There's some research that shows that as your caffeine intake increases, your cortisol level increases, obviously, and your blood sugar level increases. And then that means that three hours later, your blood sugar levels have more of a dip and um, possibly then other hormones that are associated with that. So when you're able to remove that, especially like in the afternoon, people feel a lot more stable in their energy. Yes. Uh, and even if so, like for me, I drink green tea and in the morning mm-hmm. and that's about one third of the caffeine that you would find in coffee or sometimes I'll have matcha, which is closer to like one half to three fourths of the amount of caffeine that you would find in coffee. But the stimulation that I get from caffeine is nowhere near the same as the stimulation that I get from coffee. My energy levels are more stable throughout the day. Yeah. It could be because of the L-theanine that's in, um, that's in green tea that helps to stabilize your energy levels. Yeah. But I think that it's also has something to do with the level of caffeine and stimulus that you get from drinking coffee. And that's why the eliminate, I mean, back to, you know, the functional medicine, the elimination diet going through and learning what's good for you is, is so key. One of the, one of the, your Instagram is so good. I, I thank you. You're so funny. You're just think this is so funny. Like one of the most memorable, well, two actually Instagram things I want to talk to you about. Um, one of them is just the whole gut health. You know, there's so many people talking about gut health these days, probiotics, all that kind of stuff. But there's also a term called leaky gut. Yes. That is very, I won't say common knowledge, but it's getting thrown out there a lot more. I've, have was diagnosed with leaky gut. I mean, a lot of people with autoimmune. I think most yeah, people probably. I was too. Yeah. Most people with autoimmune do. Yeah. So it's hard. It was always hard for me to like visualize. And then one day you did this Insta story about a hose. Yeah, <laughs> you remember this? And you were like telling. Well, I'll let you tell it because it really helped me visualize what leaky gut is when you hear that term. Yeah. So, so kind of give me that visual again, or all of us. Okay. Yeah. It's actually something that I teach a graduate course in integrative and functional nutrition with um, another professor named uh, Dr. Stephanie Harris. She's a PhD dietitian. And we created this class together. Um, we're going on three years ago so that we could teach other future dietitians and future medical. We have a few students that are going into medicine that take the class um, to in- intertwine that into their curriculum. And so, 
when we were coming up with the lectures, I was trying to think of all these analogies for how to explain leaky gut to these students. And one of them is a hose, and then one of them is Kerplunk, because I think that Kerplunk is another easy one where, like, once the straws are removed, you know that, like, all of the marbles, you know, like, fall through. Um, it's not, I think that the hose is a better graphic. So you have this hose and it goes from your mouth to your anus. And that is where when you eat any kind of food, it travels down this hose and then is hopefully removed through your butt. And you have your intestines, you you know, it goes, the food goes through your stomach and then your small intestine and your large intestine. And what happens for some people, especially people that have autoimmune diseases, is that they can um, get holes in their hose so that water starts to leak through. So mm-hmm. the food that you're eating actually is leaking through and the li- the lining that's right underneath that the surface of the hose is where your immune system starts. So that's when your body starts to produce more antigen or antibodies that start to attack the water that's coming out of the hose because it knows that it's not a normal response. So this is how people actually leaky gut is one of the most common forms most common causes of food sensitivities. So a lot of times when people have a number of food sensitivities, it's because they have a leaky gut. They need to work on healing their gut rather than saying that they're going to remove all these foods for the rest of their life. So thinking of that as more of like another um, not full cause that you want to dive even deeper to to understand like how you can fix your leaky gut. So you have water that's coming out. Your body is producing antibodies that that attack these foods essentially because it's viewing it as a foreign invader and then it increases the immune response that you're getting, which can lead to a number of autoimmune diseases and other symptoms that people get. So that is the ideal is for that lining of the hose to be completely sealed off so that you don't have the um, intestinal permeability. Altered intestinal permeability is also what it's called, um, otherwise known as leaky gut. And there's more and more research in the literature that's showing that leaky gut is attributed to so many other conditions like leaky gut, leaky brain is a common um little phrase that's been thrown out, mm-hmm. meaning that when you have a leaky gut, it increases your risk of other cognitive issues. And so I think that we'll continue to see this emerge in the research. But the important thing is that I also like to explain it as, you know, like the in, the inside of your hose should be like a shag carpet that's fully intact. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you have like your fingers that are fully, I'm, I'm, demonstrating this right now, but you can't see it. <laughs> you have your fingers that are fully like next to each other and touching and you don't want any separations in your fingers once you push all of them together. Yeah. And this is something that's pretty, well, can I say it's pretty common? It's so common. My assistant, actually, uh, a bunch of her family members have gone to functional medicine and she just said to me on Friday, my mom wants to know like why everyone has a leaky gut. It seems like everyone that goes to functional medicine is diagnosed with a leaky gut. Yeah. And I do think that that is the case that a lot of people do. But I will say that I have plenty of people because now in these um and the people that are in my VIP program, I run all of their food sensitivity and leaky gut testing on them. And I have one person that has an autoimmune disease and he has no markers for leaky gut. He has no markers for gluten issues and he ha- and we're testing 19 different proteins, the IgG and the IgA response. So it's super, super comprehensive. And then uh, no gluten cross-reactive food sensitivities either. It's like wow. perfect. So I don't think that it's always the cause, but it does seem to be a very common cause. And it's because of our lifestyle that leads to this leaky gut situation. So it's like heavy use of antibiotics, bacterial overgrowth of any kind that can lead to or create a leaky gut. It's any kind of um, like herbicide glyphosate exposure as well in the environment that ends up leaking into your food supply. And it can also be high sugar diets, um, increased Exposure to gluten and dairy specifically are the two food sensitivities that are the most common contributors to leaky gut. Gluten specifically is the one that's been shown in the research. And I feel like there are so many people that have digestion issues. I can't even tell you how many women that I've spoke to. And, and I feel like it's we normalize it yes. a lot. Like, well, I have my doctor told me I had IBS. Like, I got to be honest, this, this past year was a real struggle for me because I had a lot of digestion issues, a lot. And for whatever reason, I couldn't get into this before I could get into functional medicine for my appointment. So I went to a family doctor that I never went to before. And he's like, well, you have IBS. 
you know, just go home and take some Pepto-Bismol. And I was like, what? The First of all, I've been taking it for five days. And the box says, you know, if more than three days, consult your doctor, <laughs> you know. So I'm sure continuing to take it is not the right answer. And he's like, everybody, so many people have IBS. Just go home. And it's like, how many people is he saying this to? Well, long story short, I did finally get in, uh, get my appointment follow up. Uh, I was, pa- I'm not very patient. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I did get my follow up appointment. Long story short, I ended up having what's called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial growth, which is a whole nother thing, you know, to get into. But I'm like starting to do the research on that. And like so many people probably have SIBO that don't even know they have SIBO because I've had several girlfriends that have been and got tested and have SIBO. And it was causing me all kinds of, I mean, I was having neurological symptoms. I was having paranoia attacks. I was, and as soon as I got treated for SIBO, it was like it all went away. Yeah. And my food sensitivities went away. So right. all of a sudden, I've, you know, I knew gluten was a problem for me, but I was going, you know, through all of this and all of a sudden I couldn't eat almonds anymore. And I was like, what? Now I can't eat almonds? What is going on? And my friend was like, well, you should, you know, take a food sensitivity test. Maybe you're just, this happens. And I'm like, I don't know. And then once I got treated for SIBO, all of that went away and I can eat almonds now. I I still don't eat gluten. That's my non-negotiable. But the last thing I want to talk to you about here is that the food sensitivity, because this is something I've heard you speak on before. And it was like a light bulb went on when I heard you talk about it. I've had friends that have ordered on uh, those discount sites that you get the food sensitivity tests for 50% off the deal sites and, you know, whatever. And I want to know what I'm sensitive to. Then you get the test back. And I remember my girlfriend getting it and she's like, well, it says I'm sensitive to nettle tea and this, everything that I eat. (laughs) I I can't eat that anymore. But then I heard you talk about it and it was like, well, first of all, how do you feel about those tests? And to me, what I got out of yours and correct me if I'm wrong, it was like, I really wouldn't take that food sensitive test. I figure out what, you know, there's probably a problem causing those foods. And that's what was, it was for me. Right. Exactly. So I think that, you know, for for you having SIBO, which is basically, you know, you have your microbiome and your large intestine, which is where most of the bacteria and fungi and things like that reside. And you have trillions of them. And they're, you know, like I just was listening to something that said that we're 95 percent bacteria as humans, because that's how much like your intestines and your microbiome control everything that you do. So for you, you had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is where that bacteria moves up from your large intestine up to your small intestine. The small intestine is a more sterile environment where it doesn't have as much bacteria. And so then once you have the presence of that bacteria in the small intestine, it leads to a lot of bloating and GI symptoms, neurological symptoms Mm -hmm. as well. So for those kinds of instances, food sensitivities are going to result from those imbalances of the bacteria, whether it's imbalances like you have dysbiosis in your large intestine, which is just that you have an altered distribution of bad bacteria compared to good bacteria throughout the lining of your large intestine, or if you have SIBO, I think that for food sensitivities, there's if you were to ask most doctors, they're not well validated in the research. There's not as much reproducibility on them with a lot of companies that are out there. So that means that if you were to get one food sensitivity test today and then you got another one tomorrow, the results would probably look different. Mm. So it's not as um, accurate and reproducible all the time. Now, I think that for certain companies that look at purifying their samples more and dive deeper into the antigens that are um, produced from the food, that that then increases the reproducibility and the accuracy of them. But the issue with food sensitivities is that it's hard to determine whether you have a true food sensitivity or it's a food that you're you're eating too much of. Because mm-hmm. what can happen is if you're eating something like almonds, which are now in almond flour, <laughs> almond butter, almonds, almond milk, like y- almond yogurt, you could have... I was have, probably overdoing it too. <laughs> it's so easy, especially on a gluten-free diet. Yeah. And it used to be that rice was what was overconsumed and there was concerns with people that were eating gluten-free that had overexposure to arsenic since we know that rice carries more arsenic. And now the gluten-free trend has switched from rice to more almond-based products. So then you get this you know, excess exposure without even knowing that you've been eating almonds all day because they're in these hidden forms. Yeah, yeah. So 
when you overeat a food, it can lead to a similar immune response where the body identifies it. It gets really good at identifying that specific food and it starts to attack it when you eat too much of it. So there's um, a lot of times people will come back sensitive to the foods that they're eating a lot of. And it's like, well, right, because you're eating too much of them. So let's add a rotation to your diet so Mm -hmm. that you eat that food once every four days. And then the other part is that you could have a true food sensitivity to it. And I I do food sensitivity testing on all of my clients because I think that it's super valuable for us to better understand. I've seen a lot of people get a lot better from removing the food sensitivities, but I think that it's also a slippery slope to go down because it can lead to a lot of that like orthorexia nervosa that I was talking about where you come so paralyzingly fearful of eating all of these yes. foods that then your diet becomes five foods. And then you actually increase your risk of food sensitivities even more because more. you have no rotation in your well, diet. It, it sounds like the key is maybe if you're going to do a food sensitivity test, do it with a medical professional. I would suggest that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because so, I mean, it's so, you know, accessible, these things out there. It's like supplements. It's like, oh, I read an article and it's like, I should start this supplement and I should start that supplement. Yeah. The majority of people take uh, supplements, not because their doctors recommend them, but because they've heard from a friend that they take them yes. or from a celebrity actually. <laughs> right. Right. But it's like, you know, the, you know, people are influenced by what other people say and if it's working right. for them and they can just go buy it, it's like, oh, well, I'll try it when really with all of that kind of stuff, it sounds like you should really just be... Unless it's multivitamin, maybe you're safe. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. I do think that's why it's so beautiful to be able to work with someone in functional medicine that can do a whole like supplement inventory of what you're doing and what you actually need. Yes. This is even something that I brought up with my parents who they, I, I order their supplements for them through my account that I have that you get at wholesale. And so they'll send me like the supplements that they're, that they're like, can you please like order us these (laughs) refills? Then they'll throw in these supplements and I'm like, why are you asking me for CoQ10? And they're like, well, we read that CoQ10 is really helpful for like brain health and for this. And I'm like, why didn't you run it by me first before you asked me to order it for you? Like, <laughs> that doesn't mean that you need CoQ10. <laughs> right, but that's so, and I've learned that a lot that, you know, it's your doctor or your functional medicine doctor can work with you, your dietitian and all of that good stuff. Yeah, I do think that there's some that are very like most people are are deficient in omega threes, vitamin D, and magnesium are the top three that I see very very commonly and that are supported in the research. But even people that are eating um, like omega three rich fish, like salmon, sardines, herring, um, trout, those kinds of foods, they still will end up. They could be eating it like up to three times a week, which is what the national recommendation is. And I still see deficiencies in omega threes all the time. Wow. I could sit and talk to you all day <laughs> long. I'm telling you, she is just a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad you stopped by today. I want to tell everyone again, at being Bridget on Instagram. I got that right, right? Yes, that's right. And you're on Facebook as well. Yes. And my website is beingbridget.com. And we should add that my name is spelled like rigid with a B at the front of it because most people, it's the Gaelic spelling. Okay. Uh, most people b- think that my name is Bridget with a D at the end. Spell it for us then. Um, B-R-I-G-I-D. Literally rigid with a B at the front. Rigid with a B. Bridget. <laughs> at being Bridget. It's weird that I'm not more rigid. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good that you're not. I'm so glad you stopped by today. Again, I could talk to you for hours. Um, your Instagram, you share all of this stuff that we've talked about today in very simple forms. So I, I like that you can make everything relatable and accessible. And you share a lot of fun recipes, too, on your website. I will say that I bring in my chia pudding that I've learned from you quite often for breakfast. I've got all these other recipes I got from you. So is there any, like, quick recipe that you could share for us today? Um, Well, let's do the chia seed pudding. Because I think that the key to chia seed pudding, it's, like, such an easy way to get more fiber in your diet, which is a really important way to not only lower your cholesterol and and increase your level of satiety, but also help to feed your gut health. Mm -hmm. So chia seeds, when you take them and then you put them in like almonds milk or cashew milk or hemp milk, and then you let it sit for 
you know, anywhere up to an hour. Mm-hmm. They the chia seeds gelatinize, and um, so they swell, kind of like tapioca pudding mm-hmm. when you were making that. And if you made that in your in your past, <laughs> and so then you add that. The key to any good chia seed pudding is adding full fat coconut milk because mm-hmm. it makes it like very rich and creamy. So then you add the full fat coconut milk and then a little cacao powder. So cacao is C A C A O, and that's the raw form of cocoa. So you could do cocoa as long as it doesn't have sugar, but you'll get a little higher antioxidant level in the raw form that has that's coming from the cacao. And then uh, there's salt as well, because anytime that you're not adding sugar, I like to add salt to offset that. And then um, cashew butter. Yes. Is there anything else that's in that? I think that's it. And then you can top it with berries or any yeah, kind of Yeah, I fruit. always throw either strawberries or blueberries. Yeah, it helps to add sweetness. On top it is so good. Oh, I love it. Thank you. The other thing is is that your taste buds evolve over time. So if you try recipes, like a lot of my recipes are very low in sugar, and I don't necessarily recommend them as like the first jump to because your taste buds continue yeah. to evolve. And I really think that it's better to take baby steps in lowering your sugar intake um, and then allowing your taste buds yeah. to adjust so that you're not totally miserable and you're like, ew, why you're am I so eating You're so right this? because there's some like Powerball, like the perfect bar. Um, it's like a... Yes, I know exactly. I can't eat one of those. Yeah, because honey sitting. is like the second or third ingredient. There's yeah. actually I mean, I can take like little bites at a time and then I'll come back the next day. And people think I'm crazy when I say that. I'm like, I it's because I've trained myself where I don't eat a lot of sugar. And when I do, it's like overwhelming. Yeah. You're like, listen, guys, I was eating Taco Bell 10 years ago and look where I am today. (laughs) If I can do it, y'all can do it. I'm telling you. Well, thank you, Bridget, so much for being here. We're going to post thank you all for of spreading this, all of um, this important information. Yeah, we're going to have uh, the notes, the podcast notes with all of the details and all your information as well. So go follow her. Amazing. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.